0: So uh, w- welcome, everybody, to uh, the London School of Economics. So I'm uh, Wouter Den Haan, and I'm a professor here at the uh, London School of Economics. Before I introduce this evening's speaker, uh, a couple of announcements. The plan is, is that our guest is going to speak for like 40, 45 minutes, and after that there will be an uh, opportunity f- to ask questions. We uh, expect that we'll end between quarter to eight to uh, eight o'clock. And after that, you have the opportunity to uh, buy his book and get it signed. Okay. A <laughs> couple more uh, announcements. So please turn off your uh, mobile, turn it on silent, and the hashtag for today's event is LSE Experts. Um, the event is recorded, and hopefully everything will work well and we'll make the uh, the podcast uh, available, either on uh, the CFM's website, the Center for Macroeconomics, the logo's over there, or on the LSE, I mean, it doesn't matter if I'm in the picture or not, but, um, or on the LSE events uh, webpage. So now uh, I turn to the more important part of my job, is to introduce today's speaker. So Professor Easterly, is not only a professor at probably one of the best economic departments in the world. Um, I probably have a bit of a biased view, but I mean, NYU is really is one of the best economics uh, departments. He has also written lots of uh, academic papers in very good journals. But on top of that, and that always makes me jealous, he also has reached you know, out to a wider audience. He has written several books, which have sold well. He's written columns in newspapers. He's you know, on Twitter. And then, let me see whether I get this right. He was named among the top 100 global public intellectuals by Foreign Policy magazine for a couple of years. Now, those things you also could have found out on Wikipedia. So <laughs> let me t- say something that's a little bit personal, is that in uh, 2006, I think, you wrote the book, The White Man's Burden. And uh, that was based on uh, the title of a poem by uh, Rudyard Kipling. And I this, what happened is, is that this white man's burden actually increased a lot because I focus on business cycles, and, and truly, after reading that book, I really re- regretted not having done a lot more on economic growth and development, and so I'm a little bit worried that I'm going to feel even more guilty after to this evening's uh, speech. So please welcome me and uh, welcome our speaker.
1: Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Wadru. Let me do the sound check. Can everyone in the room hear me? Yeah? OK. It's a- actually better if you raise your hand if you can't hear me. That's better test. <laughs> Anyone? OK. You may regret not hearing me. So what I want to talk about tonight is how development has a blind spot with respect to the rights of the poor. And I'm going to talk about three myths that have emerged that have reinforced that blind spot. And I have to tell you in advance, the, the word myth might be a little bit harsh. I somehow have gotten this undeserved reputation for liking to insult development people and, yeah, and aid agencies and Professor Sachs at Columbia, who's a really nice guy. Um, Actually, maybe it's better if I just don't say that uh, it's an overstatement. I'll just overstate it anyway, and then we'll correct that during the Q&A, okay? So the first myth, let's call it the myth of political neutrality. It's the idea that de- development is not about political things. It can be done in a technically neutral way. Okay, it's just a long list of technical solutions to the technical problems of the poor, And these technical solutions get a lot, almost all of the attention because they're so tangible and they're so appealing and they they seem to solve the problem so directly. They're they're often very precise, like uh, here's a plot of land, it's not very high productivity if it's used for subsistence farming, let's make it a forest, forests are more valuable. That's very tangible, it raises GDP, it seems technically great. Or it might be uh, there's malnutrition. Well, malnutrition is partly about deficiency of vitamin A, so let's distribute vitamin A capsules. Or maybe there's malaria. Well, one of the ways to kill the mos- mosquitoes that spread the m- malaria is you spread a chemical called pyrethrum on the walls of the houses inside. You just spray it on the walls, it kills the mosquitoes, malaria be gone. So these technical solutions are so appealing, they get so much attention that they contribute to this myth that these technical solutions are are politically neutral. So let me tell you a story that illustrates that. This story took place on February 28th, 2010, in a district called Mubende, Uganda. Uh, The villagers of Mubende were in church when they heard the sound of gunfire coming from outside. And they came out and they saw men with guns burning down their homes, torching their crops, shooting their livestock. That was where the gunfire came from. And the men with guns kept them at gunpoint from rescuing their homes and then marched 20,000 farmers away saying this land is no longer yours, (laughs) land that had been in their families for a couple of generations. So why did this happen? It happened because there was a World Bank IFC, International Finance Corporation, project for forestry. Sorry, I accidentally set this up in the introduction. They were doing subsistence farming. Somebody had decided forestry was a better solution. And so forestry happened on this piece of land and not subsistence farming. But it was hardly politically neutral. So why do we care about this? Why should we care about this? Well, first of all, we want to care because, of course these rights violations are a bad thing in and of themselves, regardless of what any, any other consequences they do or do not have. It's terrible in and of themselves that these terrible rights violations happened. And second of all, we, say, we usually say things like, uh, you know, institutions matter for development. That's kind of a vague statement. It's not very clear what that really means, usually. Well, here in this story, it's a lot more clear what that means. Uh, Bad institutions are when men with guns burn down your homes and march you away at gunpoint and take away your land. That's bad institutions, and that contributes to a reinforced cycle of poverty. And so, of course, at some level, the academic development literature knows this very well, but somehow it's gotten lost in the infatuation with technical solutions that unintentionally lead to this sort of blindness towards rights violations. Now, why do I say there was blindness? Because... This story actually made it onto the front page of the New York Times. It was published in September of 2011. Now, I'm a little bit biased, but for me, being on the front page of the New York Times is like shouting it to the whole world. Everyone must know it once it's on the front page of the New York Times. Sorry for my U.S.-New York-centric bias there. Uh, But clearly, it's a prominent place for the World Bank to be embarrassed that they did a project that violated poor people's rights. But after that, there were two non-events that sort of illustrate this blind spot, this, this illusion of neutrality that I'm talking about in development. First of all, the World Bank was momentarily embarrassed. They actually said the next day on Twitter that they, would pro- they were promising to investigate. And now, almost five years later, five years since these events happened, the World Bank has never investigated there's never been an investigation of the World Bank's own role in these tragic events. And the second non-event was that there was nobody who really protested much in the development sphere. At that time, I was involved in a, a development blog called AidWatch, and it actually covered this story. And I noticed several things. One is there were very few other blogs that were covering this story. And the second thing, I could see the traffic numbers on my blog post on this, on this story, and they were not very good, I'm sorry to say. I got a lot more when I talked about Angelina Jolie's contributions to development <laughs> than I did talking about Mubende, Uganda, human rights violations. Um, so somewhat perversely, I then decided to write a whole book about something for which there appears to be no demand whatsoever, <laughs> uh, protesting the human rights violations of the poor. So again, let me try to insist this is a myth because institutions do matter. Uh, it's the ability of poor people to hold public officials accountable so that they can politically protest when they do violate property rights. To hold, the, also, of course, in markets, they can hold private suppliers of their needs accountable in markets by not buying the ones who go out of business and driving them out of business. And so there's the sense that what we mean by good institutions is very much about rights, about political and economic freedom and human rights that are the key to actually making sure that public and private services happen and that no such outrages such as this, this outrage happen. And so, you know, for example, it's very hard to imagine that this kind of thing could have happened in the UK, that farmers would have been marched at gunpoint and... Nobody would have protested, and there would have been no consequences for those who were involved in financing it. It's very hard to, for me to imagine it could have happened in the U.S., and that's because there's already these norms of rights and laws of rights that protect rights, and it's unimaginable that there would be such an egregious violation. Yet in development, there are egregious violations, and seemingly they pass without much protest, and that's the myth of political neutrality. So... That's probably not enough examples yet, so let me give you one more of my favorite examples. Um, I, I have to confess I kind of got tired of uh, you know referring to, to the good Professor Sachs uh, earlier. I or thought it was time to find somebody new to pick on, so my, <laughs> my favorite new person to pick on is the guy who sort of really embodies the technocratic approach to development and states it in a lot of popular debates in which he's a development intellectual. And this is, of course, Bill Gates, uh, who I think has actually spoken here, so uh, let me kind of debate him by proxy. Um, And what more? Bill Gates uh, has lots of money to give to lots of other people in development. In fact, I think everybody in development except me has gotten a grant from Bill Gates. Uh, um, So... Here's what Bill Gates said about the uh, sort of Bill Gates stating the kind of technocratic approach that I'm trying to protest. He said um, he said this about the Ethiopian government, who was led by a guy named Meles Zenawi for a long time, and then after he died was succeeded by a guy named Haile Mariam. So he said he praised the Ethiopian government for, for quote, setting clear goals, choosing an approach, measuring results and then using those measurements to continually refine our approach. I think he meant our, meaning us, the experts, and the autocrats, the tyranny of experts. Uh, Mr. Gates said that this, quote, helps us to deliver tools and services to everybody who will benefit. And he said specifically about Meles that his policies have made real progress in helping the people of Ethiopia. He actually said this after Meles died in late 2012, And Gates was already praising his equally autocratic successor, Haile Miriam, whom he praised for, quote, thoughtfulness and knowledge, as well as his commitment to continuing the policies of Prime Minister Zanawi. So, uh, actually, I can work in a local reference also. Gates is not the only one to praise the Ethiopian government. Uh, Another one who praised him is a guy named Tony Blair. He said about a plan to improve health in Ethiopia under Melis that the government has shown, quote, strong, accountable leadership in implementing the plan. Uh, Blair had kind of a long history with Melis. He had appointed him to his Africa Commission in 2005, where he was able to author a report praising the government of Ethiopia. (coughs) I guess that joke didn't quite hit home. (laughs) Mellis was able to write a chapter praising himself as part of the commission for. Never mind, it's not working. <laughs> um, so, and then since then, he was uh, accused by Human Rights Watch of manipulating food aid to starve the opposition that go only to the, the, the his loyal supporters. He put a, a peaceful blogger and dissident named Iskender Nega in jail for 18 years. Uh, he had rigged elections, shot the opposition. He's in, engaged now. And he, has, he started and his successor has continued another forced resettlement project called villagization, which is marching farmers off their lands in the Gambella region of Ethiopia. So this is not what I would call accountable leadership. There is this myth that, of political neutrality which is being violated here. There is a, uh, an appearance of technical solutions that are benevolent, but they are not implemented in a benevolent way and that 's the myth of political neutrality, so why are we have to understand why are these rights violations overlooked so often, and one reason might be is that you know, we not only want to talk about the political uh, situation in the poor countries that lead to violations of the rights of the poor let 's be fair and also talk about the politics of U.S. and U.K. foreign policy. So my second myth is also called the myth of of political neutrality that pretends development is politically neutral about U.S. and U.K. foreign policy interests. In fact, Mellis was a very convenient ally, and Museveni, the, the dictator of Uganda, was a very convenient ally of the U.S. in the war on terror. I know a little bit less about UK foreign policy, I'm sorry, but since the UK is an ally of the US, I'm assuming the UK is also allied with Mellis and Museveni. Did that work? (laughs) Kind of attempt a bridge to the local audience? Okay. Um, So there's a second myth of political neutrality is that we're we're overlooking how convenient the technocratic idea is for uh, Western foreign policy interests. We want our allies in the war on terror uh, sometimes these allies are bad guys. They're dictators. They, they're not very lovely, as I've described Mr. Melis and Mr. Museveni. But if we can also say these guys are implementing the technical solutions for development and making good things happen for development, then we can make sort of a, the politician's dream happen, that you can assemble a lobby that will combine the national security interests Let me talk only about U.S. politics so I know a little bit what I'm talking about. You combine the national security interests, the the people who only care about defending the U.S. in the war on terror, which requires having Ethiopia and Uganda as allies. And then you also capture the humanitarian interests who care about development because you have convinced the humanitarian lobby that the Uganda and, and Ethiopian government are also good for development. So you've got a twofer. You've got two for the price of one. You've got two lobbies behind one policy of supporting autocrats in Ethiopia and Uganda. And this has been a very bipartisan approach in U.S. politics. It was true under the Bush administration. It's been true under the Obama administration. Hillary Clinton, who may still be politically relevant, uh, gave a speech saying, defense, diplomacy, and development are all complements. They all complement each other. What will help one will help the other. These are very appealing ideas, uh, if your, uh, your main objective is to assemble a large political coalition behind the, uh, an idea of technocratic development. Uh, unfortunately, that idea turns out to be wrong, uh, that what is uh, good for defense of being allies with autocrats is, is bad for development, because let's face it, the autocrats are bad for development. So there's one historical parallel here that that I found very interesting when I was researching this book is that this this use of the development the technocratic idea in development is not a is not a new one. It's one that has actually gone gone back many decades. And I am now in the position where I have to get my slides working. What do I have to do to get the slides working here? Uh, press the remote. Oh, okay. Here we go. Press the remote. Your speaker is brighter than you think uh, this is This is a picture of how Mubende Uganda looked after the technocratic approach was done with it. Uh, this is the slide that I wanted to get to uh, so this is a Uh, a slide that compares a set of technical recommendations that were made in a report that was done in 1938 during the colonial era in Africa under a, a, a distinguished British colonial official that you probably have never heard of named Lord Haley. How many of you have heard of Lord Haley? I'm curious. Yeah, I thought he would make a pass on that one. Well, Lord Haley actually was one of the many founders long ago of the technocratic approach to development. He, in his Uh, 2,000-page Africa report in 1938, he'd already identified tons of technical solutions, and some of them, as I've displayed on this slide, are the same ones that we're still talking about today. So, uh, and uh, some of these I also kind of uh, somehow set up in the introduction. So the malaria cure about spraying the inside of the walls with pyrethrum, that was already known in 1938 the idea that malnutrition could be treated with vitamin A capsules, that was already known in 1938. And similarly with these other examples, the solutions were, technical solutions were already known. So the, the technocratic myth is that poverty is about a shortage of experts, and the reality is that poverty is about a shortage of rights. It was the lack of rights of the poor to see that these solutions were indeed executed that they did indeed happen, that they did indeed last, that makes development happen or not happen. So let me say that line again, because I don't have that very many memorable lines, so let me try to use that one again. Poverty is not about a shortage of experts. We already had the experts in 1938. Poverty is not about a shortage of experts. It's about a shortage of rights. The other group of export recommendations was one of this was another 2,000 page report done by the UN consulting experts like Jeff uh... Jeff Sachs and (laughs) sorry I keep forgetting I'm not supposed to mention the name and (laughs) let me diversify by saying Angelina Jolie I think was also involved. (laughs) So, You know the other interesting thing about this that that I was trying to make is this technocratic approach that I said was useful today for for US and UK foreign policy It was also useful at the time to defend colonialism Now, this is a somewhat uh, dangerous area where I'm going right now, where I'm saying development ideas had some colonial origins. So it's, I find it interesting that there was this kind of confluence of interest already in colonial times. I don't automatically want to discredit and insult anyone today for having the same ideas that colonialists had. That's not fair. We, the times have changed since colonialism. We're no longer as racist or as colonialist as we once were. Uh, but it is it is interesting how the alignment of political interests and ideas has remained uh, really stable over time. So, for example, the during World War II, the, the British Empire was under attack from a lot of directions, including from the Americans. And uh, already at that time, the Lord Haley was starting to unearth this technical approach to development and suggesting that this was the great benefit of the colonial autocrat. So at that time, the benevolent autocrat was not uh, an, a local autocrat, but was the colonial office. The benevolent autocrat was the colonial office. And um, Lord Haley, I have a quote here somewhere. He said, um, He said colonial rule was really necessary to achieve these technocratic solutions. He said, quote, political liberties are meaningless unless they can be built up on a better foundation of social and economic progress. It's always a very convenient idea for for autocrats. So political liberties, please just put them on hold indefinitely while I, the autocrat, either a colonialist or my successors, will deal with your social and economic needs. And this was great during World War II when the British Empire was under attack because now it could play the role of the benevolent technical developer. And another British official said in 1943 in a memo defending the empire, we should not concentrate on the pursuit of political ideals. There really was no danger of anyone concentrating on the pursuit of political ideals, but he was warning against that danger because that would be to the detriment of the preeminent need for improving the physical and social conditions. So, the Secretary of State for the Colonies at that time, who's another forgotten official named OFG Stanley, he read this memo and he was under attack for colonialism, and so he, he read the memo and he put this cover note on it. <laughs> he thought this was a great defense of colonialism. So, at the time, this was actually successful in staving off the, especially the American attacks. On, uh, on the British Empire, because the British could also point out that the Americans were doing the same thing with regard to their own black population that was lacking rights. Uh, the Roosevelts, F- F- uh, FDR, and Eleanor were actually taking the same kind of technocratic approach in the New Deal to trying to address the grievances of blacks in the U.S., that they did not have equal rights that they were victims of segregation. Eleanor Roosevelt had had lunch with a black leader in 1940 and suggested to him that racism was, quote, most effectively attacked on the economic front, that blacks should, quote, concentrate on the attainable goal of economic progress and postpone the challenge to segregation. So that, that was sort of a consensus that existed at that time behind both colonialism and segregation. And and in both cases, it was sort of the technocratic approach that concentrated only on material needs and neglected rights. So now let us jump back to the the present. Uh, What must we do today to address all of these problems that I'm talking about? Uh, this is the point in, in every presentation and development where the, the speaker has identified some problems, and now I give you my the obligatory slide with my three bullet points suggesting how we can solve the problem. So here it is that 's it uh, that 's really it. The organizers, when I sent them this presentation, did not understand why I had a blank slide. And they, <laughs> they tried to take it out. But uh, I insisted that we have a blank slide. So now we come to the third myth of, of technocratic development, that that action plans actually lead to action. And that our problem is a shortage of action plans. Well, actually, I don't think at all we have a shortage of action plans. Every, everyone else who has ever talked about anything in development has an action plan. And anyway, if the problem I've identified is a surplus of top-down expert answers, it'd be kind of embarrassing if I gave you a top-down expert answer how to fix the surplus of top-down expert answers. So let's talk about development in a different way that does not involve action plans. Let me refer back to the domestic example because the domestic example in U.S. politics. So... The technocratic approach did not actually hold in the U.S. politics for very long. There was this great thing that we call the Civil Rights Movement in the U.S. that was not oriented around action plans. That was only about advocacy of a principle that blacks should have the same rights as whites, that blacks should get the same treatment as whites. Martin Luther King, Jr. did not say, I have a plan. (laughs) I'm glad you got that one. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to, even today, the, and, of course, there was enormous progress made just because of fighting for that ideal of rights, that it was an outrage that blacks did not have the same rights as, as whites. And that outrage still is a positive force for social change today in the U.S., Uh, Just before I left to come here I was sitting in my New York apartment in downtown New York and I'm looking out the window and seeing mobs of demonstrators and lots of police helicopters flying overhead. Uh, At the time I was watching the movie The Hunger Games and it seemed like, whoa. so, you know, the, there's uh, continued rights are still a work in progress in every, in every country. I said it was unthinkable that Mubende would happen in the US or UK, but it is still a work in progress for, you know, not having the police killing unarmed black men. There was first Ferguson, and then there was the killing of Eric Garner, for which both pol- policemen were not indicted, and that, that was the source of the protests. And those protests, on the basis of rights, those are, those are a powerful, enormous for, force, as they already have been, for social change. Uh, the, the protesters were not holding up signs. You know, there are policy recommendations and action plans how to improve police behavior. Like you could have body cameras mounted on the police so they capture their interactions with people they are arresting and can catch them in the act. Uh, but the, the protesters were not holding up signs saying, we want body cameras. They were not holding up signs saying, you know, our action plan, body cameras, you know, real-time video. No, it was, we want justice. It was, Black Lives Matter. And these ideals are an are enormous positive social force for change. What I guess I'm suggesting is that in development, there's a way in which we're sort of at that same kind of moment in which the problem is not a shortage of action plans, the problem is a shortage of caring about the rights of poor people around the world. That it's unacceptable that we don't care. And that's the sole point that has to be made at first until more people care about the rights of the poor. And, you know, the role of, of development economists is, it, it sounds a little bit strange that development economists are talking about such a, a morally-laden, what sounds like kind of a moralistic issue. But the role of development economists is also to explain the idea in which ideals like rights actually do lead to development. They, uh, they do create this sort of really great decentralized problem-solving system in which people have the right to protest when the government does bad things to them that corrects government misbehavior. But they have a right to protest if government services for vitamin A or malaria prevention are inadequate, and the government corrects bad public services. They have the right to protest private suppliers if they deliver bad things, and the private suppliers go out of business or correct their behavior. So rights, economic and political rights, we have lots of <coughs> development economics built up around this about how this can work. And so in the end, it's a case for sort of... Uh, economic and political freedom as itself a transformative idea around the world that can make these rights realized, that can make these ideals that are a good thing in and of themselves also be seen as feasible and desirable from the the standpoint of development. That there is no trade-off that autocrats are better at development, but we want rights, so we have to control the autocrats. No, the, the evidence is the reverse, that autocrats With some, you know, temporary and occasional exceptions, autocrats are usually bad for long-run permanent sustained development, and free systems are much better. And that's consistent with our desire that freedom for the poor and the rights of the poor are a good thing in and of themselves. So that's the transformative idea that economics is really responsible for that can be linked to the transformative ideals that rights are a good thing in and of themselves. And ideas are also a powerful force for social change. Uh, You know, ideas, in a way, are more powerful than action plans. Let me give you here a quote from John Maynard Keynes that's a very famous quote. The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else, practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences. Sounds like all the politicians I know. uh, They're usually the slaves of some defunct economists. So the lesson here is we need better defunct economists (laughs) and living economists. Um, So, of course, the campaign for these better ideas and these better ideals... It's not easy. The world is a messy place. We cannot flip a switch marked autocracy and flip it over to democracy instantaneously and expect utopia to break out. There are no utopias on the table. It's a messy, uneven fight, and there will be lots of setbacks along the way, and the odds are often against against us, those of us who care about greater, greater rights and greater freedom for the world's poor. Uh, but the trend of history is upward. There has been the spread... Of freedom and democracy and economic and political rights around the world. And there are the places where they're not yet there. There are the equivalent of modern day Martin Luther King's campaigning for more rights. The jail dissident Iskender Nega, who is still in jail in Addis Ababa, uh, smuggled a letter out of jail in which he said that democracy should not be seen as the esoteric virtue of Westerners but as a universal aspiration of humanity. So let me just call, give you my own call to action, which is not about action, but it's about ideals, that we have to care enough until we get to a world where we, where we care more. We have to convince uh, people who don't believe that rights can work as a, as a path to development that rights can indeed work as a path of development. Until we get to a world where all women and men, black and white, have the right to choose for themselves, until we get to a world where all women and men, black and white, are created equal, so that all women and men, black and white, will be free at last.
0: All right. So now it's time for uh, Q and A. So the rules are: uh, try to be concise and limit yourself to uh, to one question.
1: You want to? Uh,
0: okay. You want to combine a few? Uh,
1: yeah. Sure. Okay. If
2: if uh, in those examples you mentioned with the uh, the guns um, taking the farmers' land. If the development projects had included a a generous additional line item for the cost of respecting rights, and they brought in the best experts in the world to come up with the perfect valuations for fair value for the farmers, they brought in lawyers to design a due process for them to contest those valuations and so on. Uh, In that event, if those programs were designed that way, would that address your concerns, uh, no. or if not, why
1: not? <laughs> uh, I, have, I have to answer this one immediately. Is this is this on already? So, um, you know, this is a you know one, one thing that bothers me in development is we sometimes forget some of the the insights that just come from the principles of economics one hundred and one. And I think one of the insights of, of principles one hundred and one is just the. The great value of letting people choose to know that they're better off. So what what was really wrong with this example was the coercion that uh, the the peasants, the farmers in Uganda, were not allowed to choose. And we, you know, we in economics we use fancy jargon for this. We say we call it revealed preference. That if you voluntarily chose B over A, then B must make you better off compared to A. And contrarily if, uh, if you were coerced to accept B, then it must have made you worse off, otherwise coercion would not have been necessary so that 's sort of a clear guide to what was missing in this example is not all these processes that you just you mentioned it was just just letting poor people choose whether to voluntarily sell their land to the forest for the pr- purposes of a forestry project that 's what went wrong here, and, and that is a, actually a clear violation of the world bank 's own rules. But it's I'm, I'm, the, the atmosphere of, of apathy about rights that I'm complaining about is such that the World Bank was able to get away with that.
0: Okay, let, let, let's combine a couple of questions. I, I think there's one there in the middle and then at the back.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's good if you got that.
0: Yeah. Just wait till you get the microphone. There's one in the middle here, the balcony, and then one at the back. I know she got... Wait. She, she got
3: the Hi. Thank you for the presentation. Um, I
2: just have You're welcome.
1: You want to say that again? <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: I just have a small comment or remark that uh, most of the developing nations um, where there are a lot of poor people, the their right to
2: protest is not even there. So um, how how can we think of the right to choose something in general if they cannot even protest? So I just wanted to uh, thank you.
4: Okay.
0: There's one here from?: the front.
5: Thank you, um, Danny Kuo. I'm in the School of Economics.
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Bill, the way you ended it makes it sound like anyone who's gonna argue against you is somebody really evil because <laughs> That <argue>, was an accidental for <laughs> for all these for all these wonderful things yeah but yeah. can i suggest that in some of the language you use that we should care about the poor that that should be the overriding concern you and angelina jolie are actually really <laughs> close <laughs> cuz the both of you wow I, okay okay argue that <laughs> But my worry is that, you know, to say that what we should be doing as a community is caring about the poor uh, includes too many people. It's too broad a church, I wonder, although we, we can agree we should. Lee Kuan Yew in the 1960s and early 70s rode to the spectacular success that he did on exactly a program about caring for the poor providing HDB flats, setting up a social contract. And I don't know if you would agree that the kind of autocracy that he built for Singapore is, you know, sits well with the vision of rights empowerment that you described. So I wonder if it's useful to be a little bit clearer on this. Mm-hmm. And of course, the great example there is also the United States, which you would probably argue is a best for how we enshrine these rights, mm-hmm. has not really you know, cared for the poor as much as it has for perhaps the top
1: 1%. Thank you.
0: There's one question at the back on the balcony over
4: there.
1: Hi there. My name is Petros. I'm a student at LSC. Um, And I had a question in regards to um, your thoughts on, I guess, the Beijing consensus. I know when I read your book in my
0: undergrad, I was really influenced by it and um, the critiques against the Washington consensus. But what
1: are your thoughts, I guess, on the Beijing consensus as a whole, uh, considering that it's Seem like it's relatively um, successful in regards to development, and um, at the same time, it's not the most considerate when it comes to political rights. So, okay, should I take those? Um, so, um, the first comment, yeah, I, I, it is true that there's a missing right to protest. And that's, that's one of the things that makes up this sort of systematic violation of rights. Political rights include the right to protest. And so that's, it's a symptom of the absence of political rights. And protest is itself a great self-correcting mechanism. It doesn't mean every single protester gets what they want. It just means that the more you do some, the government does something wrong, the more protests there will be that will generate self-correction. And that's uh, you know that's very much a work in progress in poor countries. Obviously, again, we're talking about a long transitional, messy process to get to that point. It's not going to happen overnight. But the the indifference or the apathy of development people is sort of neglecting that dimension of development. That's that's what I'm complaining about. Uh, Danny, um, so uh, yeah, I hadn't never really thought about it that way that I had joined the same camp as Angelina Jolie. And and in a way, it's true. I think I'm somewhat at a disadvantage in that argument. Um, But what she is—her advocacy was about material poverty. And I guess the complaint here is that the emphasis on material poverty is too one—the advocacy about material poverty is too one-sided. There should be also advocacy. I'm not saying. it's it's valid to care about material poverty. That's great. And there's been a lot of success of advocacy getting people to care about material poverty. That is also great. What's not so great is to neglect the other goal, which is to care about the rights of the poor and their ability to choose in and of themselves. And, you know, uh, I've already kind of hinted that I'm aware of sort of the discomfort that is created sometimes when an uh, academic economist starts engaged in moral advocacy. But again, I want to... It's, it's somewhat of a, a rebellion against the misuse of economics, which was, uh, economics was built around the idea of an individual who's free to choose. That's sort of the moral heart of economics, which is the title of a great article on that subject by Ed Glazer at Harvard. And so there's a way in which economists have often, and and still today, in, in uh in the research for the book, I had a lot of fun dug, digging up a lot of forgotten defunct economists who had long campaigned for attention to rights and development, and they were unjustly not listened to and neglected and forgotten. Uh, I'll look forward to that same fate. Um, so uh, That's the reason why I think this advocacy campaign does have to be joined. Um, now, the there's going to be a lot of questions, I think, about uh, examples of benevolent autocrats. So every question that I've ever gotten on this talk involves either uh, Singapore or China, <laughs> which both seem to be examples of uh, you know, benevolent autocrats, either Deng Xiaoping or Lee Kuan Yew. So there's a couple of things to say to that. First of all, our, the evidence that we care about is about levels not about growth rates. And the reason we get excited about China and Singapore is about their very high growth rates over a sustained period of time, not about so much level. So that Singapore sustained it for so long that now they're at a good level also. But uh, most of the excitement when Lee Kuan Yew was still in power was about the growth rate, and the same for China today. So there's a couple things to say about that. First of all, we're, there's a sort of selection bias in remembering the autocrats who produce very high growth rates. We're forgetting all the other autocrats who produce disastrous growth rates. And the real uh, truth of the data is there's just enormous variance that, uh, that you know some autocrats are there on the scene when there's very high growth. Other autocrats are there on the scene when there's very negative growth. So that's the first fact to kind of acknowledge that it's not so good for the autocratic case. Uh, the levels evidence is not so good for the autocratic cl- case. Most places that are rich in levels, there are problems of causality that we can talk about, but most places that are rich in levels are also have a high degree of rights and democracy and, and economic freedom. And then lastly, if we are excited about the growth rates in Singapore and China, then we should relate them to the changes in rights, the changes in freedom. And there was a big liberalization and change, in, in, especially in economic freedom in both Singapore and China. And some change in political freedom. There's certainly... Lee Kuan Yew is certainly not a, a brutal totalitarian like some other examples. And, uh, and China even has had some positive change in, in personal and political and human rights compared to the dark days under a totalitarian Mao. So there's some change in rights that are in the same direction as the rapid growth that seem to fit the evidence. So that's, that would be the response I give to that. So, um, about the Beijing versus the Washington Consensus. um, So, yeah, I think the problem with the Washington Consensus is that uh, I think the real problem was the way in which it it itself was kind of a tyranny of experts, that some outside economists were very free market oriented, and thus, in principle, they should have been in favor of kind of freedom and rights of the poor to choose for themselves. Uh, But these sort of outside foreign economists decided they knew exactly how uh, a society should move to implement greater economic freedom was the thing that they cared about. And and it was sort of coerced upon poor countries through the World Bank and the IMF that these reforms were made conditional. You only got loans from the World Bank and the IMF conditional in making these reforms. And so there, it's a sort of another kind of kind of tyranny of experts. It's coerced reforms from outside Uh, even if it was intended to be in the direction of greater economic freedom, the experts don't often know enough to know what is a movement in the direction of greater freedom for individuals within a society. It's better to have local people able to voice their own opinions through a a free political and economic process of rights. That was the problem with the Washington Consensus, I think.
0: Uh,
1: Why don't you go ahead?
0: One here in, in the front. There's actually two, two here. We have both.
4: Thank you. Um, is I, I mean, what you're saying just seems so obvious, and I think a lot of us agree about human rights, and it just seems so blatantly obvious. But just here, in you know, what's going on in the states with with the killings of black men the ongoing stuff that that they don't need to wear the clan robes anymore they can just do it in the open um... today disabled people in the uk got dealt a massive blow by the royal courts of justice just up the road Um, within the same couple of days as this pardon me idiot woman i wasn't familiar with Who's an MP apparently said that the reason people are starving and going hungry in the UK is because they're bad cooks. <laughs> um, it, what I keep wondering, I walk around, I remember the protests that we went, the marches, the tear gassing. We tried, we tried, we protested for years and years and years and years. What the hell is going on? And what can we do about it? Because things are just seem to be regressing. And getting to the beyond the stupid point and the harmful, and people are dying from it and suffering.
1: Thanks. Thank you for that comment.
0: Just,
1: yeah.
3: Hi, my name is Deity, and I'm actually a dual degree student with LSE and Columbia, home to Jeffrey Sachs. Um,
1: <laughs> say, say hi to him. I'm on
3: me. your side, though. <laughs> so, first of all, I wanted to thank you for your references to Ferguson and Eric Garner, um, and secondly, I wanted to ask you if you believe. And I noticed that your slide for solutions is empty, but I was wondering um, if you believe that um, an adequate way to kind of counter the top-down, paternalistic, borderline colonial. Um, assistance to uh, developing countries, if you believe that an effective counter would be to train people from these communities um, and really aggressively recruit them and train them in, I suppose, Western methods in order to go back into their communities and enrich it so that it's, uh, I would say, an, a, an in-between point between the, the Western perspective and the Native uh, perspective.
0: And that was one? Question? Over there. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so your your last slide is blank with regards to what development experts can do to help people, but um, I think, I don't know, that seems to be cheating in a way, what would you say to, say if we've got an organisation like DFID, like a major donor, so they work in places like Ethiopia, obviously, um, they have to work through dictators and that, what would you say to them, because you're, you're surely not just saying keep on as normal, so are you saying Pull out of these countries? Are you saying make aid conditional on improving political rights? Are you saying engage in political advocacy for local democratic groups? What What are you saying? There has to be some sort of upshot to what you what you've said.
1: Okay. Um, great. Thanks for these great comments and questions. So the um, the situation of unarmed black men in the US. There are references in the UK that I don't know about. Um, again, it's uh, it shows how much rights is still very much a work in progress everywhere, and still requires vigilance and, and protest and and you know committed committed action by people who care about rights, uh, even even in places where, that we think have a better situation of rights. I'm not as pessimistic as you. I think there has been progress. I think the the the, the protests of the past have led to progress. Uh, if we just think about the situation of African Americans, I mean, I think. There actually is a big change between the Ku Klux Klan and, and policemen who who get vociferous protest if, if they kill an unarmed black man. I think that there has been a change to the overt racism of the New Dealers who, who refuse to grant rights and only promise technical solutions. And we're still engaged in racist statements and racist denials of rights to, to, to black people. I think there has been a change. That it's no longer acceptable to be openly racist in the in same explicit way that it, that it was just completely taken for granted among the generation of my my parents and grandparents so i believe I think protests uh, and campaigns for rights they do work in the, in the long run it 's always frustrating there are never as much progress as you want there's more setbacks than you want, but there is progress um, so about training people to protest in poor countries that 's a uh, um, I guess my my gut reaction to that is they don't really need that training. They they, they already are protesting. I mean, uh, uh, what's I think it's what's more going on is that poor people are protesting already around the world, and are just being met with neglect and indifference by uh, people who care about what who care about their poverty but not about their rights. And that's again this imbalance in advocacy and caring that I think needs to be corrected but you know there is action going on all over the world from you know hong kong uh, the the opposition in ethiopia the the progress that's been made in latin america in getting rid of a a region that used to be 100% military dictators and is now you know filled with kind of imperfect but still democratic systems there there is this this progress over time where poor people are already protesting and already getting some some success yeah. More so yeah, I think that's. I think spreading the idea that development is is mainly. I think this whole what must we the Western humanitarian experts do? The problem with that mentality is there's this this sort of we've got everything sort of. It's like. A, it's like the old view that the, the universe revolved around the earth. That this the whole universe revolved around the earth, you know, that the sun revolved around the earth. We need like a Copernican revolution and development where not everything revolves around what we the, the Western you know humanitarians do. That, that we recognize that development is mainly about what poor people do for themselves in demanding their own rights. And um And, you know, historically, the the campaign for rights has been an international movement, that people do take comfort from support from other sympathizers in other countries. Not so much at the government level. I don't think the government promotion of democracy or protest movements or civil society, I don't think that works that well. I think it's mainly about people-to-people kind of sympathy of ideals across societies. The people in Hong Kong and Ethiopia, they are really discouraged when we don't care, they are really encouraged when we do care. And we, in this case, doesn't mean we Americans or white people or, or white middle-aged college professors. Uh, it means everyone around the world who cares about about rights as a cause as well as poverty as a cause. Uh, so, about DFID. Um, actually, I was at DFID earlier today <laughs> where I got a lot of these questions. Um, so most obviously you, um, and first of all, I want to congratulate Diffid for being open to critics. They invite a critic to come in and talk and have a dialogue, and it was great. I, I salute them. Um, so a couple things to say. Uh, so, so it's not about, I, uh, there was uh, sort of some lame efforts made a while ago to kind of make aid conditional on some kind of superficial democratization reforms that did not really work. I, d- I don't place any faith in that happening. Again, I think the, the most important point to make is that aid is not going to be the main engine of change in this area, that it's going to be these other changes in, in the spread of ideals and the spread of ideas that will be the main agent of change. But ha- having and and if the obsession with aid, which I've been partly guilty for, I confess, and being getting undeserved attention for criticizing aid, which is just as guilty as getting attention for promoting aid. But it, it exaggerates the importance of aid in development. Uh, so that's the main point that I want to make in response to what you're saying. Now, if you force me to say something that aid should do differently, then. The most obvious thing is, uh, you know, don't finance Melis when he's doing a villagization program, which DFID did do, USAID did do, the World Bank did do. Uh, The World Bank board even heard directly from refugees that were uh, fleeing forced resettlement from villagization in Ethiopia. And they still went ahead and approved World Bank financing to this project. So that's... You know, don't do direct financing of rights violations. That's the most obvious thing that you can say about about aid agencies. That's not conditionality. That's just refusing to participate in a rights violation.
0: Oh, lots of questions. Is that uh, you've been uh, waiting for quite a while? <laughs> you. And just. <coughs> no, no, sorry. The guy has my my hairstyle. well I think when I listen to you you just don't get to or maybe you do to the same conclusion as I did when I was younger I I left my job to go and work in Mozambique to do development aid and I was shocked by how badly things were how the country became totally dependent on aid and how aid basically was destroying the country 75% 75% of GDP was aid, and and there's no free, no initiative for new business. You just initiatives for projects. So, it, and then I thought, okay, what, what should happen? And my conclusion was, your empty sheet. You should stop aid. it's the only thing. If you want to care about people and, and treat them further, you should stop aid, trade, not aid. And I just wondered, you know, you, you don't seem to say to reach that conclusion. And I wondered whether why not or whether, but you do agree after all.
4: Why don't you the microphone. To okay. Um, I'm. My name is Alicia Maraj. I'm studying human rights, so I'm always happy to hear um, an endorsement of human rights. But my question to you, as an economist, is that the free market has just as much potential to exploit people's rights and um, to create inequality as the Autocrats or the tyrani- tyrannical experts that you speak of. And so I'm asking you, in light, if you've taken steps to, to speak about how the free market itself can be either through international regulation, can be addressed so that it doesn't perpetuate inequality, it doesn't commodify the nature, it doesn't devalue human rights and human lives. So that's my question to you.
0: And I think there was a question way at the back on the balcony. Yeah. Okay.
3: Um, Professor, thank you for coming. So how do you accommodate the idea of brain drain uh, with your position that poverty links to a shortage of rights rather than a shortage of experts? That is, should we be only talking about shortage of rights to invest in human capital and innovation in developing countries? Thank you.
1: Thanks. Okay. Okay, um, great. Uh, Once more uh, wave after wave of great questions and comments. so about uh, about aid uh I had to write a whole previous book about that so uh, I'm ready to move on from that I you know I don't uh, I think there is potential for aid to do uh positive things that are When when it's not engaged in directly financing a dictator, uh, manipulating the aid to starve the opposition and to reward their own supporters or to finance the jailers of Eskandernega or to finance civilization. So those are all ways in which, yes, I would say stop that aid. Um, But, you know, there there are other good things that aid has done, such as just spread general knowledge about antibiotics and oral rehydration salts, and partly through financing and demonstration, spread knowledge about vaccinations that have led to, to positive results. So I, I would not just issue some kind of blanket dismissal of all aid, because sometimes it does do, do, does do good things. But the... will do more good things if aid itself is more democratically accountable both to the people that it's supposed to help and the people who want to help the poor people and that's a big a big reason for a lot of the dysfunctionality of aid that you that you observed in mozambique is that lack of democratic accountability so it's the lack of rights over aid agencies is 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 another way to state that that kind of problem um so um you know it is um, what can happen in markets is that when, uh, when poor people don't have, like let's say this Uganda example I gave, for example, there was a, a private company called the New Forest Company that was also implicated in this story of, of violating the rights of the poor. In fact, the World Bank sort of tried to blame them as being the one who was to blame for this this tragic story in Mubinde. Mubende. Um, so that's a situation where I think it's very clear how exploitation can happen. If the if private companies take advantage of the lack of rights of the poor to steal the land of the poor for their own enrichment and pay off the government, or uh, are s- somehow able to sort of uh, force the poor to work under unsafe conditions with some kind of, uh, you know, lack of, uh, ability to choose some degree of coercion that again is taking advantage of the elemental violations of political rights that prevents would normally prevent such coercion if any of those conditions exist then then markets uh, sort of economic agents and political agents can be the sort of the evil twins of each other that are taking advantage of the lacks of uh, protections of the poor to exploit the poor now. The, the benefit of economic rights is that it gives you the right to, to choose, to, to leave. If if conditions at your employer are too terrible, you leave for someone else. And if any one employer is so awful and there really is a protection of people's right to choose and to move and there is protection of the right to spread good information without, without punishment about who are the bad employers and who are the good employers, then those rights are themselves, this, this choice mechanism is some, itself, some protection against against rights violations and the last thing about the brain drain um, you know I actually came to sort of the opposite conclusion in the end about that Uh, uh, first of all let's get out of the way that the uh, the brain drain is not quite as as bad for the people left behind as people usually say it is that it's what's often happening is the brain who has moved abroad is sending back lots of remittances to his family his or her family back home is spreading lots of useful technical knowledge or business contacts to to family and and kin networks and and bigger business networks back home and so uh, there's a lot of newer research that is showing that brain drain can often in this even narrow sense be more of a gain than a drain but then even more important I think um, you know why uh, if, we, if, we, if our solution to this perceived alarm about brain drain was to restrict the right of poor people to move to another place where they could get a higher salary, that it, that would itself would be a direct violation of their rights. And, you know, we recognize these rights for rich people. Nobody bats an eye when an American comes to work in London. Nobody calls that brain drain. But when a Zambian comes to work in London, then it's called brain drain. And, you know, why... Do we have a double standard with respect to the choices of Zambians and the choices of Americans whether to move to London? That's, uh, I think, you know, again, there's no sort of utopian instantaneous solution of complete freedom of migration, but the the interference with people's right to live where they want often creates more harm than it does good. I also recognize the complexities of of immigration that people in in a, a rich country don't want to be swamped by too many immigrants of some other culture that, they, that they're not familiar with and all these other reasons that immigration is complicated but at the core we should at least have this basic understanding that there is something really good about allowing people to choose where they want to live and it also gives them a way out of escaping an autocratic regime. You know they can just move from an autocratic regime to a more liberal regime and that itself is often a pressure on the autocrat at home. there's two
0: questions here in the middle
1: Hi there yeah uh, thank you for a good talk. Um, In your book, The White Man's Burden, you talk about or you distinguish between planners and searchers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you say that the randomized control trials that are being used by MIT economists and others uh, in order to understand what targeted interventions at poverty can produce, would you say that those types of actions qualify as searching, according to your definition? And would you encourage more of that type of activity among development uh, academics and workers?
0: Right, right next
5: to you. <laughs> no problem. Uh, thanks for the talk. Uh, from what you say, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the state seems to have a very uh, uh, important role. But it can be very used very cynically, the rights approach from, let's say, uh, aiding states to kind of decide also politically on who to help. That's why, for example, a lot of African states like the way China does aid or development in Africa with n- not so many requirements, but uh, how can we circumvent this kind of cynical uh, use from both, from an autocratic regime in Africa and from a, a donor state that might have other uh, political interests? How can we have, the, for example, civil society to civil society support, which is what I understood that's one of the methods to maybe help the rights approach? Thanks. Okay, so
0: there's a question there at the back.
3: Hi. Um, my name is Ipek Ergin and I'm from Turkey. I'm a student of international development here at the LSE. Um, I just wanted to ask you if, if there's anything that you're optimistic about in development
1: because <laughs> 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 since the title of the talk it's, it sounded like you're... Um, because of the empty slide of what to do, <laughs> what the development community should um, start doing, or that kind of argument. I was just
0: interested in um, the issues that you're optimistic about in development. Thank you.
1: Okay. I need one more question while I think about that.
0: <laughs> I think the person here in the middle is being try On oh, the balcony. Yeah.
3: Um, I can just talk loud. Um, I'm Tracy. I'm from the States. I'm wondering, um, in light of what's happening in the states right now with Eric Garner and Mike Brown, do you think that it may be more of an issue with institutions? Seeing as, although I agree with you that things have improved, you know, generationally in the states, um, we've had these issues of racism since our democracy began. We're still having horrible issues with it today. So yeah, I'm just wondering, yeah. you know, looking at the states as a model a lot of times like we do in some of these classes, Um, how can we move forward in places that don't even have um, the institutions that we have in the states to begin with, um, certain
1: developing countries? Okay. Um, So... um, let me sort of combine the last two questions: the, the empty slide and the uh, and the the fight for, for rights and racism against racism in the U.S. So, um, you know, the 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 pessimism shown by the empty slide is is I think it's a fairly realistic pessimism. It's just saying we've had lots and lots of action plans that don't 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 result in action. Um, uh, I spent one year at a think tank, the Brookings Institution, which is a great, great think tank, one of the best ones in Washington. And, you know, the think tanks in Washington are just overflowing, at the libraries are just overflowing with task forces, action plans. Um, so, you know, I think being pessimistic about what those kind of action plans and whatever forgettable action recommendations I would have put up on this slide... Uh, I don't think that's uh, uh, some kind of deeply pessimistic view of the world. I think it's just being pessimistic about the uh, us self-important experts. How much we think that we that our recommendations are really changing the world. I'm looking in other much more optimistic directions of of social forces that are actually that are actually are making progress. Like I, I did mention that there has been progress around the world on 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 rights and democracy and. You know, there's been a longer period of progress over a very long period of time, away from explicit racism and colonialism towards more towards independence and greater rights, towards greater democracy, a recognition of, of the economic rights of the poor, which I don't want to neglect in this discussion. You know, I think that's also a very important dimension that we think of economic rights as some, something that only uh, rich people care about them. that. That's just not true. I mean, poor people, like in the Uganda example, care very much when their land is taken away. That's a violation of their economic rights. They they care very much when they're forced to pay bribes to do their own their own business, supporting themselves. Uh, so these violations of, of, of economic rights are also one in which there's been a lot of progress over time. There used to be enormous state violations of economic rights that have really changed much for the better in development over a long period of time, partly because of the ideas of, that were, that were you know, created by economists and the, and the combination of resistance movements by poor people themselves. that They didn't like having their political and economic rights violated. Uh, economic rights can do a sort of um, very decentralized protest, that when the state is kind of trying to drive you out of business and you go to the the gray market or the informal market and you start operating in the informal market and you evade the state, people are very inventive of getting around the state, and the state eventually has to cave into reality and recognize that their extreme attempt to control poor people's activities are not working and they give more economic rights and they give more political rights after political protests, and there is progress. So I'm just putting more faith in them than I am putting faith in uh, self-important uh, middle-aged college professors and think tank experts. I think that's not pessimism. That's putting optimism in the right place. And as far as the race, uh, the battle against racism in the U.S., um, you know, I think, again, that it's, um, you know, I, I mean, it is it is discouraging in uh, that there's still so much racism, there's still so much violation of, right, of black people's rights after all this time of 200 years of campaigning for for greater rights and against racism. Um, and I guess uh, that's similar to the, the message for development, that it's a very messy process. But if you keep fighting, there is progress. You go from you know, slavery, the slavery was a lot worse than what's going on now. You go to Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and segregation. That's a lot worse than what's going on now. You go to the racism of the North that existed openly and and brutally against black people in the in the decades before the civil rights movement. That's that's worse than what's going on now. So there is this progress. You know, let's not dismiss this generational progress. The generational pro- progress is happening because people are demonstrating for for that black lives matter when eric garner is killed by a white policeman for no reason uh... that's a sign of the health of our democracy that there can be so much protest is a sign of the health of our democracy that there is so much outrage that in itself is a hopeful sign that there that there that will be a force for change so um, then quickly on the other two comments um, On RCTs, I I think I'll I'll just have to pass on that one. Uh, I think there is a lot of interesting discussion on that. Um, I don't think I think they are oversold as a panacea. Let me just say that Uh, they're they're very expensive to do. The results don't often generalize, so they're, they're oversold as kind of a panacea for how to you know get things right and get get all development interventions right. And the RCTs themselves neglect to exploit some of the choice uh, information that we have available to us. You know, that uh, you don't always need to rely on evidence that something makes poor people better off. You can just let them choose. And if they choose it, then you can infer that they're better off. That's something that's somewhat neglected by the RCT mindset. And lastly, on civil society, I guess, again, I'm a little bit. Um, I think uh, you're cynical about the, uh, I'm sorry, I lost the questioner. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, sorry. Absent-minded professor, another reason you should not put me in charge uh, solving all of your problems. Uh, um, Civil society, uh, unfortunately, is just as much subject to manipulation as as the cynical manipulation of uh, development ideas is for foreign policy interests. and my hope is more in the, uh, in the spontaneous civil society that poor people themselves create, which we've seen lots of, uh, of examples of. And, you know, uh, many leaders from around the world have gotten Nobel Prizes and for, their, for their homegrown activist movements. That's what I would have more faith in than any effort by uh, aid agencies to kind of promote civil society to resist uh, rights violations.
0: Okay, let's try one more round of questions. I guess there were a couple of people on the balcony. Um, the two in the middle, on the second row, the guy, with, the gentleman with glasses, a couple of rows behind it. Hi,
2: so my name is Johan. I'm a student chair at the LSE. Um, I want to turn back a bit to, to business and the responsibility of business. Um, and them caring about rights of the poor so and I want to give you an example so take the example the of Angola does do western oil companies bear responsibility for uh, the funding of, of the Angolan repressive regime of, of José Eduardo dos Santos uh, 80% of the revenues, government revenues uh, in Angola uh, are derived from oil and Certainly, I mean the the price mechanism or the or mechanism mechanism of of uh, of choice doesn't really enter into I mean uh, that equation, does it? I mean, should the U.S. stop buying oil from? From Angola because uh, uh, Angola is a repressive regime, is that where the responsibility lies? Um, I mean Western business leaders have been praising uh, Dos Santos in a way that would uh, make Gates 's remark about Melis sound like, a, like an insult. Uh, I mean does do what kind of responsibility do, does business bear on its own, and how should they be held, held, held sort
0: of accountable for that? Mm-hmm. Okay, one more question. Perfect. Is the microphone is behind you.
3: Thank you. Hi, um, thank you for the talk. Um, I was just wondering so, you're obviously critical of um, top down Western um, strategies in aid, um, but you did mention that uh, in terms of education on healthcare, aid can occasionally be effective. I was wondering what your opinion on the current aid going towards the Ebola epidemic is and whether you think that that's successful or taking this kind of western blueprint of aid uh, of healthcare, sorry, and implementing it there what your opinion on the current aid there is at the moment um,
1: Okay So um, um So on the question of private oil companies helping the repressive regime in in Angola. Sorry, where are you? Oh, there you are. Thank you. Um, So, I mean, the problem here is really created by the state's ability to extract revenue from from oil, which it does through either a very high rate of taxation or through direct state ownership of, of some oil assets that are sold to Western companies. Um, so this is a case this is one of these sort of horror stories where the state's ability to control a, a natural resource can finance repression and that's this has been well documented in the in the in the political science literature and the economics literature that there's sort of this oil curse associated with repression which is about this ability to of the state to kind of dominate the whole economy which is in a way that it's the, the worst-case scenario is when the uh, and I, I, it is true that we need what we really need is is political and economic rights that reinforce each other, where there's sort of creative destruction and freedom of entry, which creates the f- which prevents the formation of a permanent economic elite, and democratic accountability pre- prevents the formation of a permanent political elite. When all of those conditions are lacking, you can have the worst case of a a permanent. Uh, both economic and political elite permanently in power that is able to exploit oil and and will will use whatever private companies they come in contact with to uh, to you know make that persistence in power uh, last forever basically uh, and that's that's the sort of horror story outcome but the problem there was not really the markets it was really the ability of the political elite and the economic elite to sort of permanently capture their position and prevent any Any entry, there's no ability of entry of new, of of new economic agents who would destroy the old ones because they're more efficient, they're able to do it better, they're less exploitative. There's no ability, there's no political competition that would allow Angolans to vote out their oppressive government. So it's, it's what you're describing as a sort of uh, reinforcement of of the evils of of economic monopoly and political monopoly, which is. it's kind of a great horror story of what happens when both economic and political rights are absent. So that's, that's I think, the point of that story. Now, the the Ebola epidemic. So this is... Uh, uh, sorry, where are you? There you are. Thank, thank you. Very absent-minded, sorry. Uh, so, um, you know, I think there's... Uh, this is uh, a complex story, and I, I will be forced... For the sake of a short answer, to oversimplify it a little bit, there is a way in which the the severity of this of this outbreak did have something to do with the kind of um, lack of accountability of of government health officials in these in these countries to prevent this these kind of horrific epidemics of such a, a horrific disease, and so you know, it's, Ebola is happening in uh, very dysfunctional economies that have. and and states that have been suffered from many, many years of civil war and violence. And that's not an accident. You know, that's part of a consequence of the the toxic legacy of many years of warlords and civil war and autocracy is, is a fairly dysfunctional state that is not able to deal with Ebola. And that's the most fundamental problem. Of course, I very much support any Western effort that can uh... that can deal with the emergency and kind of it is feasible for western aid in this case i think to to come in in such a sufficient volume to stamp out the the epidemic but let's be clear about the domestic political roots of the epidemic it's sort of like with famines you know amartya sen made this great point that democracies don't have don't have famines that is sufficiently accountable democracy has sufficient information and ability of people to protest when things are handled badly that famines don't happen. And I think the same thing is true of of severe disease epidemics, that democracies don't have severe out-of-control epidemics because they get a public health service that is accountable to the people that will not let such horrific things happen. So once again, we're back to the same conclusion that to make things really last, to make development really solutions really last, what you need most of all in the end is the political and economic rights of the poor.
0: Thanks. So uh, I would like to thank you all for coming. Uh, I also would like to remind you is, is that Professor Easterly is willing to sign his books outside. and So please let us go out first so we have some time to get settled over there. And finally, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have, and join me in thanking our speaker. Thank you very much.